Hello. A message from Seth. Before this episode of Storytime begins, I implore you to turn the volume up on your speakers or headphones as loud as you can take it, and to smoke as big a joint as you can at this moment. Thank you. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to Storytime with Seth Rogen. Today's episode, Sing Along. Sing Along. Sing Along. Sing Along. I'm always fascinated, like, where, like, work comes from, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, like you know, that this song came from this experience and the person who inspired the experience doesn't even know about it necessarily. And, 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 and it's so meaningful to you and so many people. And like, is that something that you've kind of been fascinated by over the years with your own creative work is like where you were pulling things from, how they're, how they're materializing, you know? Every songwriter I know has pondered this endlessly and we don't know where they come from. We do feel like they're given to us. I smoke a joint and I pick up the guitar and I'm high as a kite and I'm very happy. And then I start fooling around and and I see what comes. It's as if I'm standing on a hilltop going, Yoo-hoo! Anybody out there? And sometimes stuff comes. Why do you consider it one of the best songs you've ever written? Because it makes me cry. <laughs> you know, uh, good songs take you on an emotional journey. Yeah, a really good song takes you on a little emotional journey. Uh, and uh, it does. I find myself looking at a computer screen, face to face, with David Crosby, and he's lying in his bed. So, uh, David, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Here we are. You're laying in bed. This is how. This is always how I envisioned <laughs> interviewing you. <laughs> well, it seems like a sensible place to be. It's the perfect place to be. David Crosby is a icon of the music industry he was in the birds he was in crosby stills and nash and young and he wrote dozens of incredible songs that are listened to and loved to this day but if you ask him what his best song is he has one answer and today he will explain not only how he wrote that song but why it is so special to him and why he hopes it impacted not just him, but other people as well. One person in particular. This will get more specific. Let's let Dave start the story now. Story time. Story time, yeah. 
So um, let's go back to when this story starts, David. Take me to the beginning of your story, please. <laughs> the beginning of my story is right after the Civil War. No, I'm not <laughs> actually not as old as I, as I look. Uh, beginning of the story is when I was in my first real group, which was the birds. We were a bunch of young musicians, uh, and we did not know what we were doing. And when you say you don't know what you're doing, what do you mean by that? <laughs> I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, the only one of us who really actually knew how to play was Roger McGuinn. Michael Clark had never played a real drum set. Chris Hillman was a mandolin player, not a bass player. <laughs> if you had seen me, Seth, trying to learn how to play an electric guitar, it was absolutely hysterical. I had never played a guitar standing up with a strap before, you know, posing with it in front of a mirror, trying to figure out how to hold the damn thing and play at the same time. We had never been any place. I mean, not anywhere. We hadn't been to the corner for uh, Coca-Cola. We we didn't know nothing. And what year? Uh, what year was this that you were uh, starting? 1964. Right? 1964. And uh, explain as a musician what it was like to be making music at the same time as the Beatles. <laughs> well, Seth, it was kind of pathetic. I mean, we had Beatle haircuts, Beatle shoes, Beatle jackets, and we wanted desperately to be the Beatles. They set us up as being the American Beatles. And of course, we weren't anything like that. There was no answer to the Beatles. We weren't even in the same ballpark. They were the first group to go internationally huge. Wow. There were other people who were internationally huge before, you know, Frank Sinatra, people like that from a different era. But this was the first group to crack it in pop music in the world. In the world. You know, as a filmmaker, there's like popular movies, but I think a lot of filmmakers then when they're alone together are like, yeah, it's popular, but it, it fucking sucks. You know, like did did musicians also think they were really good? And was that like part oh, of man. what was? Yeah, we, we wanted to be there. Yeah, yeah, they were our total heroes. And why do you think even though you didn't know what you were doing, you guys became successful right away? It's called Tambourine Man. It was a, a Bob Dylan song. It went from being a folk song to being a really good pop record. We were different. We started singing stuff that had significant words. We started singing stuff that was intellectually interesting. We started singing stuff that was way, way, way out of the normal range of pop music. And uh, that, I think, is the largest reason that we won. Um, but we did win young and early. Of course, for us, that meant we all five of us bought Porsches. <laughs> <laughs> Some things never change. <laughs> so there we are. We started getting gigs. And right away, early on, they gave us uh, a trip to England. Now, okay, this is terrifying for us, man, because we were afraid that we would also meet the Beatles. 
and we had also terrible gigs, man. Just really awful. And uh, we no sooner did we get to like the worst of them, and the guy the guy greeted us at this one in a blood smeared you know apron, and uh, the place was full of smoke, and it had roaches, and it had it was dirty and filthy and loud and awful. And through the smoke, I look out through the smoke, <coughs> and there's John Lennon. <laughs> And there's Paul McCartney and there's Mick Jagger and they're all there right in front of me. And this is really, this is a horrible gig. The stage was so small, I didn't have an amplifier. I had to plug into the bass amp. And I'm supposed to play and you can't hear my guitar because we broke a bass string. The only time on any gig ever that we broke a bass string. It was just horrifyingly bad. Yeah, absolutely horrifying. Terrible gig, right? Imagine if if you had to do like a scene in front of your favorite actor. Well, I, I have a similar thing that haunts me in that uh, I'm I love Bill Murray. He's like probably my favorite comedian. And and one time he came to a charity show I did, and I actually met him backstage, and we hung out, and I made him laugh backstage, which was great. And then he sat in the audience during the show, and I had like an opening bit, and it completely fucking died. <laughs> like it could not, like it could not have eaten shit harder. <laughs> <laughs> to the point that, like, it, it it like for weeks it was all I would talk about with my wife, and like to this day, like whenever Bill Murray comes up, I I like my, I think like my wife knows there's a part of me that is always thinking like that one fucking night when I ate shit in front of Bill Murray, what a terrible terrible night that was. So humiliating. I <laughs> yeah. totally get it. I really totally get it. Despite a truly terrible performance. David Crosby managed to find a way to get into the good graces of the Beatles, a way that I personally could not relate to more. One of the main reasons that the Beatles liked me, man, was that I had good weight. <laughs> well, the only thing that could smuggle into England conveniently was hatch. They'd build it into the truck frames and drive it there from the Middle East. And they didn't have good weed. I ran into an African actor friend of mine who had just come from Africa. And he had real pot. And so they loved me. It's funny because I have filled the exact same role uh, in my life on many, many, many occasions. <laughs> uh, and I have also been around European people who have never smoked just a pure joint of weed and when and then i'm like just try this and then they do and they're like what have i been doing my whole fucking life like yeah where how do i get this anybody out there just a note about europeans and weed and this is just a breakdown as far as i can piece it together here in north america we got a lot of weed we smoke weed if you're from the west coast like i am a joint to you is just ground-up weed wrapped in a rolling paper. Sometimes you smoke a blunt with his ground-up weed wrapped in a cigar leaf, but that's pretty much what you're smoking. Then there's something called spliffs, and let me take a second to explain this. Spliffs are weed and tobacco mixed together and wrapped in a rolling paper. They're more popular in Montreal 
and in my opinion, it's because of the European influence. Allow me to go even deeper into that one. In Europe, they don't have a lot of weed, like David says. They mostly have hash. Hash is hard to smoke. It's a little weird and unwieldy to ignite and inhale. So what most people do is they roll it up in a little balls or a little stick, and they mix it with tobacco. Or they do what's called brewing bods, which is another way of smoking hash. But again, it's generally mixed with tobacco. So I think when European people get their hands on some weed, their instinct is to mix it with tobacco which is a terrible idea and it essentially ruins the weed smoking experience it's like taking a beautiful fine wine and pouring beer into it it's fucking pointless so like i said to dave every chance i have i give european people a joint of just pure weed with no tobacco in it they take one hit and they're like fuck yeah And so they loved me. They absolutely loved me. They said, uh, all right, come on over and bring some of that. And we got to be friends. I, I went over to their houses for dinner. We had visited them in the studio. And it was like really good. They were doing uh, Sergeant Pepper. Oh, no, 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 no. I refuse to go. And that's right. And I'm so stoned. So stoned. And they sit me down on this stool in this huge fucking room with these gigantic speakers on either side of me, and they played me Day in the Life. Day in the Life. This is take eight to the wild for the end. I get to the end of that last piano chord, and I just about died. My brain ran out my nose in a puddle on the floor. It was not, it was, I could, you can't do that. I was mush. I was a noodle. They were much more real than we thought, and they were much nicer to us. And, and, and particularly George, who's like, was just the nicest guy you could ask for. He was tough and he was smart and he, and he didn't kiss your butt, but he was, uh, he was a kind human being, right? I, I became friends with George to the point where he started talking to me about stuff that mattered. I'd just been turned on to Ravi Shankar. Somebody gave me his record, and I had it in my suitcase. And I gave it to George. And that had repercussions. That created a, a lot of music. <laughs> a lot of music. <laughs> The practice of transcendental meditation, which is a simple, natural method. He goes to India because he loves Indian music, and he meets this teacher, right? The, the Maharishi, I think. The yeah. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, him. And that's the source of a thought. This time seemed to be riddled with like gurus. There was a lot of questions going on. There was a lot of people trying to find spiritual paths, trying to find other ways of thinking and doing. Uh, many people, you know, they're looking for an answer. They're looking for, Jesus, we get here without even an instruction booklet. We have no idea, you know, what's going on. What's that noise? Oh, that's thunder. That's God. The gods are angry when you hear that. Uh, okay, so what's the God's name? 
Uh, I'll tell you. I'll give you a list. I talked to him this morning. I don't really buy religion at all. It just never rang true to me. I think we invented it because we didn't know what was going on, man. We were just lost here. And we needed answers and we were lonely and there was no instruction booklet. And so we invented gods, lots of them. <laughs> you can pick your flavor, you know, explain your religion. Well, it works like this. And you, you wind up laughing. You, you yeah. start laughing right in their face. And I wanted to tell him, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, Hell, I wanted to tell him, take it with a whole shaker full of salt. I wanted to say that to George. I wanted to say, be skeptical, right? And I couldn't because it was George. What did you think would happen? He would just be like, fuck you. How dare you tell me something? Yeah, I was afraid, yeah. Yes, I was afraid I'd blow the friendship. Yeah, absolutely. Because he, he was so valuable to me, man. The guy was, he, he knew everything that I needed to know. He was doing what I wanted to do. He was nice about it. He was like my hero. Yeah. So I couldn't tell him the truth. Yoo-hoo! Anybody out there? Well, so I wrote him a song. I wrote him a song called Laughing. And basically what it says is, I thought that I met somebody who told me that they knew what was going on, you know, and, and were telling me this, that story. And and I listened, but I don't really think that's the way it is. I think the wisest person I ever saw was probably a child laughing, playing in the sun. And uh, I don't even know if George heard it. Let alone uh, was moved by it. But it, it, it generated one of my best songs. I, I don't think there's any question. It's one of the best things I wrote. Why do you consider it one of the best songs you've ever written? Because it makes me cry. <laughs> Did George ever talk to you about the song at all even just to say he liked it or in general i heard that he did i don't know that for sure but i i heard that he did and i hope he did what happened to your relationship with him did you stay friends with him uh he died we had a uh a, one of those relationships that you have in our business when you run into somebody mm-hmm. you have an intense like period of time with them and then you don't see them for three years yes because uh, you're on the road and they're on the road and the two roads don't go to the same place. Yeah, I'm always fascinated with musicians, honestly, because like I was saying to someone recently, it's like if there's a room full of famous people, the musician is always the most famous person in that room. Like if there's... Bullshit! No, it's true. Oh, no, it's not. It it is true. You you actors (laughs) always say that about musicians. We always want to be actors, man. We always (laughs) want to be... But musicians have like... Like I couldn't make a hundred thousand people show up to look at me. <laughs> like I, like I just yeah, couldn't. Yeah, you might be able to soon. Maybe once, but like not, not a, not in multiple cities across the country. You know what I mean? Like, and and I have a theory as to why, and I think it's because sound is the first thing that most uh, people experience. Like, I think it's the first sensation most people have, and and what musicians do is like organize sound. It's in general like a theory I have about like creativity and art and what artists do as someone who just smokes a lot of weed and and, and is creative a lot is like I think part of what artists are doing is like 
taking things that seem chaotic and organizing them through their own perspective. And like sound is something that we all experience and, and chaotically and organized from a very, you know, from the womb, we hear our heartbeats, but we hear just like, you know, a barrage of noises coming at us. And so when someone is able to like take organize it in a really beautiful way, we like it a lot. We really love it. I think you're probably right. I think you're probably right. I think that's a really great way to look at it. The music contextualizes the words and delivers them, makes you listen to them in a way that gets past most of your filters. Yeah. That's a powerhouse thing, man. It's very, very strong. Uh, Yeah. And I think like sound is probably the first thing that scares a person. And so like, what is more comforting than someone who's able to not only like tame that beast, but like presented in a way that is, that is beautiful and, and organized and predictable and nice and, and understandable. Yeah. And hasn't some kind of emotional impact, man. Everybody feels a minor chord is a sad thing. We don't know why we don't know why, (laughs) but they do. It's a almost universal thing. Right. So we've got an advantage. We've got a pipeline to your head and it's a, and it delivers stuff that's pretty crisp and we can, we can take you on those emotional voyages. I think it's the second greatest art form. Uh, I think film actually is the greatest one because you get to uh, combine music with visuals and make something even bigger. Yeah. Allow me, if you would, to extrapolate more on this theory that I have. There's flavors. Some things taste like shit, literally, because they are shit. Other things taste like salt, other things are sweet. It's chaotic. What do chefs do? They organize that. They present it to us in a way that not only makes sense, but is desirable and lets us know about who the chef is as a person by how they chose to organize these things, what their sensibilities are. There's colors. Painters organize those. There is the raw imagery of the world itself. Photographers organize that. And then there's stories. There's the things that happen to us in our lives. There are events that seem, in a way, hard to add context or organization to. And I think that's what people like me do, is they try to organize that. Have, have you ever written another song to tell someone something that you didn't want to tell them face to face? Many times. I wonder if anyone's ever made a movie trying to tell me something. I don't think they have for some reason. Not yet. <laughs> Not, Not yet. yet. <laughs> Not done. You know, as you affect people's lives, so they will come back and affect yours. Story time. Story time, yeah.
This was so lovely. Thank you so much, David. Uh, I couldn't appreciate it more. Uh, this, thanks, this was Jeff. so sweet. Yeah, thanks, man. I got you in bed on our first date, so uh, thank God. <laughs> All right, excellent, man. Take care. <laughs> okay, have a good one. <laughs> Yoo-hoo! Anybody out there? Story time with Seth Rogen is an Earwolf production.
Produced, edited, and sound designed by Richard Parks III. Our executive producer is Frida Perez. Additional production by Josh Richmond, Renee Colvert, Jared O'Connell, and Marina Pais, with special thanks to Amelia Chapelo. Our artwork is by Robin Richeson. Our theme music is by Andy Kristen's daughter. Additional music in this episode by Richard Parks III. I'm Seth Rogen. Hi there, this is Mary Holland. You may know me from Happiest Season, or Veep, or The Woman in the House Across the Street from the Girl in the Window, or you may know me as Janice Cramps. Huh? I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th anniversary. Wow, 15 years old. Comedy Bang Bang is about to get its driver's permit. I'm so excited for it. And I'm, you know, really grateful because Comedy Bang Bang has brought me so much joy as a listener and a performer. And I'm just very grateful for this community that we have in Comedy Bang Bang. You can hear me and a lot of other very funny people on Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. So what are you waiting for? Tune in! Happy birthday!